still suffering from colonial oppression decades after becoming independent countries? How is Canada maintaining white supremacy against countries in the global south and international students from abroad in spite of genuinely feeling they were doing good for a people? How is a looming invasion of Haiti being organized as we speak going to be similar and how is it going to be different from an invasion exactly 20 years ago this week? How much of a role do Canadians and Americans play in reversing the tide of continuing racism in our continued trade and relations with former black colonies? This week on the Global Research News Hour, on the occasion of just concluded Black History Month, we are shining a spotlight on the prevailing mechanisms by which colonial powers continue to exert their influence on the racialized countries they previously controlled and efforts to reverse this trend. In our first half hour, we will be speaking to Jamaican-based researcher Tina Renier about the coloniality of power and the dilemmas facing black nationalism. In our second half hour, we are joined by Jeffrey Caite about the 20th anniversary of the coup against Jean-Bertrand Aristide this week and how the tactic of invading a black nation in the name of protecting it will be attempted again in a few weeks. On this week's program, rooting the periphery, not the core, of white supremacist domination in the Caribbean. Is black self-rule a delusion? Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of March 1st, 2024. The program is funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg. I'm your host, Michael Welch. The show seeks to provide listeners with access to analysis of some of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our shows are features on partner radio stations across Canada and the United States and available for streaming or download at the site Global Research. We acknowledge that this program was produced on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe, Ininu, Oji, Cree, and Dakota, the birthplace of the Métis Nation and the heart of the Métis Nation homeland. The land and waters were secured by settlers using fraudulent promises and broken treaties with the indigenous population who were here first. Reparations are the making of amends for wrongs that have been done and from which non-indigenous people have benefited and should be paid in various forms that reflect a proper and respectful relationship with indigenous people. Now it's time for News Notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. Listeners should know that some of the articles may run against common messaging about sensitive subjects and are not all endorsed by this radio station. The brain activity is changing according to changes in frequency and number of firing of neurons in the brain and is accessible to any energy which will produce in neurons electrical currents in the frequencies of different activities of the human brain. This may be induced by extra-long electromagnetic waves transmitted in the natural frequencies of the human brain or by microwaves pulsed in the brain frequencies or possibly by energies discovered by quantum physics. Extra-long electromagnetic waves will, due to their length, control the brain activity of masses of people while directed 
pulsed microwaves can be used to target individual brains. The USA, Russia, and China own systems which are, among others, capable of producing strong electric currents in the ionosphere by transmitting their pulsed microwaves in the brain frequencies. Those alternating currents produce in the ionosphere intensive electromagnetic waves in the the brain frequencies which reach large areas of the planet and will control the brain activity of their populations. That comes from the article, Cognitive Warfare, Stop the World Competition for, quote, Control of Human Brains, unquote. By Majmir Babacek, posted February 28th. The Prime Minister of Armenia, Nikol Pashinyan, has announced his country is, quote, freezing, unquote, cooperation with the Collective Security Treaty Organization, or CSTO, which may be a step towards leaving the Eurasian bloc altogether. According to Igor Korachenko, Director General of the Caspian Institute for Strategic Studies, this development is a direct result of recent agreements between the Caucasus nation and France after Pashinyan discussed the matter earlier this month with French President Emmanuel Macron. Paris and Yerevan signed a weapons contract amid a general boost in their military and defense ties, with France having agreed to sell the Thales GM-200, an advanced air defense system, to Armenia. France's agenda does not always align with that of the U.S.-led NATO, as we can see in the Indo-Pacific itself, for example. Paris has, of course, its own traditional aspirations in the South Caucasus, pertaining to its competition with Britain, the so-called Fashoda Syndrome, and also its complex relationship with Turkey, as Paris has long sought to contain Turkish ambitions in the East Mediterranean and beyond. That comes from the article, Armenia Pivoting to the West, Distancing from Eurasia, Enhancing Military Ties with France, by Uriel Araujo, posted February 28th, originally published on Infobricks. The proportion of Ukrainians who believe that Ukraine can win, quote, only militarily, unquote, is only 23%, although one year back it was 35%, registering a drop of 12%. A European Union poll conducted in 12 countries in January 2024 revealed that only 10% of Europeans believe that Ukraine can defeat Russia. The poll also found that now most people in Europe support, quote, compromise solutions, unquote, unlike about a year back when there was much more emphasis on the Ukraine reclaiming all its territories. While these three surveys show that there is a clear preference in the USA as well as in Ukraine for finding a way out of the Ukraine war towards peace, this does not appear to be backed by the most powerful persons in the ruling establishments of these two countries. In fact, leaders at the top in the USA have continued to say 
that they are willing to support the Ukraine war effort against Russia for as long as it takes, despite the terrible human costs of the war, which have only continued to increase in recent times. That comes from the article, three recent surveys re-emphasize the need for negotiations to end the Ukraine war by Bharat Dogra, posted February 28th. On February 26th, French President Emmanuel Macron refused to rule out sending ground troops to Ukraine. Although he admitted there is no consensus about this within NATO, Macron insisted that, quote, nothing should be excluded, unquote, and that, quote, we will do everything that we can to make sure that Russia does not prevail, unquote. The next day, French Prime Minister Gabriel Attal reiterated his message saying that, quote, nothing can be ruled out in a war, unquote. Just like Macron, he conceded there's no consensus on the matter, but also insisted that, quote, we will do whatever it takes to ensure that Russia cannot win this war, unquote. This leaves the obvious question, what exactly can the political West, much less France alone, do to, quote, ensure, unquote, Moscow's defeat in Ukraine? That comes from the article, Sending NATO troops to Ukraine is, quote, not ruled out, unquote, by Drago Bosnik, posted February 28th, originally published on Infobricks. These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu bar. People might think racism is being dealt with as we witness the popular response to the alt-right by our governments and citizens, even within the institutions enshrined within the framework of society, eradicating racism is a task and a duty to all of us. And yet, in subtle ways to many of us, it is actually still continuing with Canadian support. We'll be speaking to an individual who's written on this topic frequently on Global Research. Her name is Tina Renier. She's an independent researcher based in Jamaica. She once wrote an article about how she actually grew up in poverty in rural Jamaica, a daughter of a woman who dropped out of college, did not meet her father, and was raised by her grandparents. She witnessed and experienced abject poverty, deplorable roads, limited access to water, no scope for stable and quality forms of employment, teenage pregnancy, gang violence, and Hovering above all of these deficiencies is people's quest to survive in a socially and economically depressed environment. But she resisted authority in all its forms, which would push her, have a tendency to push her to the side. She's today a volunteer at Just Peace Advocates and a regular contributor to global research. She received a Master of Arts in International Development Studies in Nova Scotia, Canada, and she speaks today from her own research and experience about the hidden forms of racial oppression that seem to plague us at the highest institutional levels. Tina, thank you so much for participating in today's program. Thank you for having me, Michael. Now, countries liberate themselves from racial oppression, become independent, but invisible powers of oppression still seem to cling 
and won't go away. But there seems to be a, a replication of patterns of abuse and violence. Despite ridding themselves of the masters, you've written articles to this degree. I'm reminded of the Orwell story, Animal Farm, in which the animals overthrew the humans, but then the pigs who took their place proclaimed that while all animals are free, some are more free than others. You can see this in South Africa since the end of apartheid. And this is true of Jamaica, where you were born and work today. So what I'm asking you is, is how do the former colonizing powers still have their hooks in these so-called liberated colonies? I'm really happy that you asked that question. And I think in one of my previous articles that I've written with Global Research, I've mentioned the facade of the whole the whole concept of post-colonialism. And the prefix post, I critique the prefix post, post actually means the end. But what we see is the enduring forms of colonial and imperial encounters. And I'm going to give some very precise examples of how that is imbricated in the political economy, in social life, in institutions within Jamaica. So being an international development studies specialist, I see where official development assistance in the form of foreign aid did you know that in our country, according to the Economic and Social Survey of Jamaica 2022, debt servicing, the money that we are using to pay off debts to foreign companies, to international institutions, actually exceed our foreign aid that we are getting from them? I didn't so know that's that. the first that's the that's the first form of it in terms of it being and when you look at the faces of power in international development institutions it's still a replica of the old colonial days so yes you do have more jamaicans going into positions of executive and management but i am talking about those who actually call the shots those faces of power they are still replica of the old colonial days mm. well how how do the people themselves who are, are calling for for black power the, for themselves participating in dismantling their own countrymen in a way with which the colonizers are comfortable. So one of the ways that we have been advocating, and I must highly commend the social activists, the social justice persons, and the reparations movement here in Jamaica and the Caribbean for calling for legal and a constitutional reform. So our constitution was in originally inherited from Britain. And those that were involved in the constitutional process were the wealthy landowners, members of the political two major political parties. But what we are now calling for in terms of a, in terms of the constitution is to decolonize our constitution, decolonize the institutions, and push towards something that truly represents the Jamaican people, self-determination of the Jamaican people and of the Caribbean people. So those are some of the discussions that have been taking place nationally and internationally. And in terms of our advocacy on reparative justice, we do have a reparations commission that is doing not just advocacy, but also research to guide the process. So, And that has led to the CARICOM 10-point plan 
on reparations. It has also led to research that was released last year saying that Britain, Spain, Dutch, all of those colonial powers, those imperial powers today, they owe us in the Caribbean, peoples of African descent, trillions in reparations. So those are some of the interesting movements and advocacy that has been taking place nationally here in Jamaica and the broader Caribbean. Mm. I was wondering if you could give us maybe a, a, a constructive example on, on how this process plays out, like, you know, on the on, on the lower levels, I guess, and on the workplace and so on. How, how is it, how, how does it connect with the people, shall we say? The processes of racialization, are you speaking about the advocacy? Is it touching base with persons on the ground? Yes. That is what you mean? So yes, yes we are social justice advocates and the, the non-governmental non institutions are working very closely with disenfranchised communities, women, maroon people, peoples of African descent, young people are playing a greater role too. As a matter of fact, the recent constitutional reform committee that we have in Jamaica, there are some members of the committee that are actually young people who have been established youth leaders in their communities. So it does have a community drive. It does have a few strengths, but one of the limitations um, of the whole constitutional reform, many persons are still not aware of what it's about and how to hold the constitutional reform committee more accountable. And in terms of reparative justice, I must say we have taken a few important strides, but we still have a far way to go as it relates to connecting academia, the public sector with active community engagement. You're talking about some of the, uh, the, the, the six, I guess, successful strategies. I mean, you're talking about the the, the Rastafarianism, for example, that uh, came in. Yes, that's what I'm talking about as well. So I'm saying that the, apparently there is still the, this disconnect between different sectors in society. And while we have been historically strong with drumming up the support and galvanizing the masses, there are still disenfranchised groups, I believe, that have been excluded from this process or feel as if their voices and contributions are not necessarily being heard, being taken account and operationalized in terms of implementation of, of policy of legislation, action plans, programs of activities that are beneficial to their interest. Yeah, I, I know that you uh, had, I just wanted to point out uh, like one of your articles, you you quoted a, a, a thinker who wrote a story about, uh, uh, you know, a, a young black person was uh, reading a, a story yes, about- Yes, Professor Anthony, yes, Professor Anthony Bogues, yes. one of the most prophetic um, scholars of the Caribbean and decolonial and political thought. And that was in the early 20th century. So that particular article looked at the 20th century problems of black self-rule in the Caribbean. And that specific example in Jamaica was in the 1960s, shortly after we gained political independence in 1962. There were some students, some young boys attending black history classes 
in the inner city of, of Kingston and policemen came out to beat them. And that was the that's a very vivid example of what post-political independence looks like, not just in Jamaica, but other parts of the Caribbean too. And by the way, you mentioned earlier that your your father is from Trinidad. Trinidad was a part of played a major part in the Black Power movement in the 60s and the 1970s. And one of the prophetic scholars from your country is uh, Dr. Eric Williams, he was a former prime minister, and he wrote the text Capitalism and Slavery. Mm. Well, uh, it, it seems that uh, even though the, the, the privileged or a former colonizing country uh, is, uh, you know, extending this, uh, you extending these current forms in uh, international development for the you know, privileging uh, to the, the colonized countries. Uh, but even though the privileged country is doing it, they literally think that they are helping the country in question, you know? So, I mean, how, how, how did, when did that fact first become apparent to you? So um, one of my very first articles that I've written with global research looks at the IMF, and its role in the public sector wage negotiations in Jamaica. And for me, the helping narrative, we are here to save these developing countries. We are here to help them to develop this whole popular notion, this whole popular narrative. It has to be demystified. And this is an invisible form of racialization, ongoing colonialism, ongoing imperialism, in 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 ex colonies in the global south and why i say it's an ongoing form of imperialism uh barbara heron who is a scholar of development spoke about this concept called planetary consciousness and planetary consciousness refers to uh the way in which white men and women from the global north feel compelled, they have this global obligation to save and to civilize um, countries of the global south. And I saw that with the way in which in international institutions that emerged in 1944, known as the Bretton Woods institutions, the IMF, the World Bank, the WTO, also known as the unholy trinity, these institutions, while they are they are responsible for global monetary um, cooperation, global trade, and what are you, I realize that they still reinforce power relations that are predicated on domination and subjugation of these countries. And with respect to Jamaica, one of the reasons are long-term goals for development, for example, sustainable development, protection of our environment, ensuring that there is longer-term full employment for Jamaicans in terms of longer-term economic growth. One of the reasons our country lost out post-1980 even up to now, it's because of IMF and World Bank intervention in our country through the structural adjustment programs. During your time as an international foreign student, um, what, what signs did you see of, of, of the racist tendencies toward you and fellow students? In my time in Canada, 
one of the first signs of racism that we experienced was the first to second week in our master's program. We had an issue where uh, we received an acceptance letter outlining that we would have, we thought, or based on the communication of the, the acceptance letter, we thought that we would have had full sponsorship in terms of our tuition. But that soon changed when we got a message from the service center saying that we owe a significant amount of money on our tuition fees. And if we don't pay it, this could affect um us advancing in our master's program. So a group of us, including myself, organized to meet with the Faculty of Graduate Studies and Research at St. Mary's, the dean, the vice dean, uh, to discuss uh, the discrepancies in the letter versus what our lived experiences and realities were. And I remember clearly someone in that meeting, someone of power and authority said to us that one of the requirements of coming to Canada is to have money. So us being in a situation of financial difficulty, bearing in mind all of us were black students, all of us were from developing countries, and all of us were from developing countries at some point in our development trajectory were victims of structural adjustment programs, the cutback on social spending, mm. the mm. trade liberalization, all of those international policies impacted on our local development. So when it comes on to issues such as us being poor, Pavel, I want us, I want to bring home the point for racialized persons, whether it's from the Caribbean, continental Africans, those who are living in Western industrialized countries. Poverty is not an individual condition. It is not a coincidence. It is a structurally organized process. Okay. Uh, in the last couple of minutes we have left, uh, Tina, I was wondering if you could uh, just comment on what we can do um, both within the the, the, the colonized uh, uh, countries and the colonizer countries, what we can do to reverse this tide? So one of the important things I have been, been following internationally, developing countries through the transformational leadership of Prime Minister of Barbados, uh, Mia Motley, she has called for a complete overhaul and reform of the international financial architecture. She has called for climate justice. She has called for reform in which developing countries have more power, more voice in shaping, not just decision-making, but the outcomes of decision-making that is fairer to developing countries countries. And I think that is a very powerful place to start in terms of shifting the tide internationally. I think, though, 
where we could that really needs improvement and strengthening is connecting those international issues and localizing them at the community level. So I would love to see a greater involvement and collaboration between academia and community involvement. And by community involvement, I mean the beneficiaries, the participants, the persons who are directly affected by processes of ongoing racialization, colonialization, and imperialism. In terms of the West, I would say the West would need a different set of recommendations. And um, I know you've read the article on, on reflections on coloniality of power, racism, and maldevelopment. Um, I mentioned that one of the places change can really take place is in the education system abroad, given that many advanced countries such as Canada, Canada is ranked number three in the world in terms of higher education and its role in innovation and research. I am thinking of increasing equity, diversity, and inclusion in terms of critical race, scholars, and scholarship in institutions so that there can be not just knowledge production, but decolonial knowledge production that is transformative of societies in which we live. Fascinating conversation. I look forward to having you on again real soon. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you so much, Michael, and it was a pleasure having me here, too. We've been speaking with Tina Renier. She is a Jamaican-based researcher. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcasting from CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and from partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. Jeffrey K.E.T., also known as Jean Seville, is an Ottawa-based author and a member of Solidarité Québec-Haiti, a co-founder of Canada-Haiti Action Network, and a co-founder of Akasan. He's an artist and an activist emerged in global peace and social justice movements. He's a radio host. His blog is jeffreykaiti.com. He's a political analyst on Canadian and international media, a University of Waterloo graduate and a Canadian civil servant, he continually calls on Canada to stop interfering in the government's governance of Haiti, where he was born. He's speaking to us about the 20th anniversary of the coup which overthrew Haiti President Aristide and what looks like another power grab by Western white nations in coming weeks. Jeffrey Gaiti. It's great to have you back on the Global News Global Research News Hour. Welcome. Thank you very much for having me again, Michael. Twenty years ago, on this very date, February twenty seventh, we're having this interview. A group of Haitian Canadians and other supporters were protesting against the moves by President Bush and Prime Minister Martin in Haiti. This was two days before the coup against Haiti actually took place and not acknowledged at all in the mainstream media. Most people didn't have this information. How did these Haitian Canadians know about, or the people in the group know about the coup that was going to take place? Yes, indeed. Uh, we had a group of uh, demonstrators in front of Parliament Hill, 
and we march from Parliament Hill to uh, the U.S. Embassy uh, on Sussex Drive to deliver a message uh, that uh, the coup that we saw unfolding in Haiti is reminiscent of what happened to Prime Minister Patrice Lumumba of the Congo, who was assassinated by the white supremacist forces at 35 years of age. Uh, and later on, the same thing with uh, Patrice, uh, um, sorry, Thomas Sankara in Burkina Faso, for much of the same reason that President Aristide's second uh, attempt at uh, you know, finishing a five-year mandate uh, was under attack by the CIA and the other white supremacist forces. That is, a president who was investing in healthcare, in education, uh, the priorities of the 99% black population of Haiti. But these priorities are at odds with the desire of the 1% white uh, uh, families in Haiti that are running the economy of the country as if it was a neo-colony, because for them, what they call a comparative advantage of Haiti is uh, uh, slave labor uh, in, in those sweatshops that they manage on behalf of Canadian American multinationals where they make uh, uh, t-shirts, underwear, electronic goods, and they hire uh, impoverished Haitians uh, as slaves, and they cannot organize uh, labor uh, uh, at the risk of uh, being uh, beaten, killed uh, by uh, the military or uh, the the police. So when the government of Aristide came to power, uh, he doubled the minimum wage, uh, he started to invest uh, in in you know, building more public schools, etc. All of these were considered uh, too much uh, for those 15 white mafia families who, with their contacts uh, uh, among corrupt elites in Canada and the United States and Europe, um, they realized that they could uh, muster the resources to overthrow President Aristide. Those of us who were following uh, the politics, we saw this coming. So, for instance, there's something called the Ottawa Initiative on Haiti, which is a meeting uh, that was convened by uh, Minister Denis Paradis uh, in Gatineau, uh, where high officials uh, from uh, Europe, uh, North America, El Salvador, uh, met right here in Ottawa, and they had decided that they were going to overthrow the government of Haiti, put Haiti under UN tutelage, and um, that leaked 13 months before the coup. And so people in the community heard that this was uh, in the making. And then, of course, on the ground in Haiti, we started seeing the signs. By the time we reached 27th of February 2004, the uh, criminals who were being trained by the CIA in the Dominican Republic had already crossed the border into Haiti, killing police officers and marching in. And it became clearer and clearer that these armed criminals were working hand-in-glove not only with uh, opposition political parties in Haiti, but also with the U.S. Embassy uh, and, as it was to be confirmed later, with uh, uh, French officials who had paid those mercenaries to get rid of President Aristide because President Aristide, in addition to his investment in, in social welfare, uh, was also uh, demanding that France 
returns the 21 billion at the time that uh, uh, most uh, honest people uh, recognize that they owe Haiti because they had collected a ransom at gunpoint from Haiti from 1825 to 1947. Mm, yeah. Um, in, just a, a question about the Ottawa Initiative in January 31st and February 1st of 2003. How exactly did that information leak or what was the, the yeah. setup? So the article, the main article, came out from L'Actualité, which is a Quebec-based uh, uh, newspaper, um, uh, a magazine. And the author is Michel Vastel, who unfortunately uh, transferred to the realm of the ancestors uh, a few years ago. But Michel Vastel's article uh, actually came out in February, uh, although officially the official publication is March 15th, but it was already circulating online version on uh, in February. And when it came out, the, the title is Haiti Put Under UN Tutelage. And the subtitle says that Aristide, the president of Haiti, must go. It's not the opposition in Haiti asking for it, but foreign ministers at the invitation of Canada. And, and then the article went on to provide the details of how the meeting took place and how Michel Vastel came to find out about what they were discussing and the fact that uh, this was uh, you know, a, a decision uh, made by those individuals and that there was no Haitian participating in that discussion about the future of Haiti. There were no black people at that discussion, too. Was, well, I, I don't know if the people serving coffee were black, but you know, <laughs> <laughs> the, the, those who were making the decisions apparently weren't. Yeah. Well, I mean, back at that time, I mean, what they were saying, uh, like with Bush and then and, and Martin and so on, they were saying that, uh, you know, we were intervening because of the uh, or there was an intervention in order to help bring control back to the country because Hey, uh, Aristide's forces were, you know, causing all the discord. They don't mention the the the, the FRAF members or the the, the FLMN who were uh, also, you know, who, who were acting on behalf of the uh, the these white you know, f families, as you say, or the uh, you know they had the the, the old um, you know the, the, the old Haitian forces involved. Uh, but you know the, the whole idea is that we the, the Canadian and the Americans and the French and so on were intervening in order to and then they brought in the UN forces to bring stability to the nation essentially you know and uh, the thing is that uh, I, I'm wondering right now we've got uh, a lot uh, you have this guy uh, Blinken going and trying you know having talks with other leaders and, and having, uh, I think Lula is now uh, looking at leading uh, a, a group of soldiers into Haiti to, because of the gang violence that we're seeing, uh, that that's, seems to be causing a lot of uh, mess and mayhem. Um, I, it, it sounds like a similar kind of rhetoric in a way, but I mean, maybe you could address you, what are the critical similarities and the critical differences between the actions of today and the actions of 20 years ago? Yeah, there are more similarities than differences. Uh, the, the differences are cosmetic. The fact that, for instance, they are putting 
the Kenyans as uh, the front folks saying that they're the ones leading uh, the intervention, uh, when in reality, all of the those meetings that are taking place in Jamaica uh, are funded by Canada and the United States. So really, <laughs> uh, the Kenyans are, are mere mercenaries in this thing. They're not really deciding anything. Okay, And as you know, when it comes to uh, foreign interventions, it would be very surprising to see that Canadian police officers or soldiers would be taking orders from a, a Kenyan general. Okay, this is not how the real world operates. So they're doing a cosmetic change because the coup in 2004, uh, the racial dimension of it uh, was criticized. And in fact, you will notice that on other international files, the United States has been doing the same thing in recent years. Uh, most of the decisions that are taking place about Palestine at the United Nations, you see it's a black woman uh, who's raising her hands, just like they used Colin Powell to lie at the United Nations when they were attacking Iraq. So there is this use of black traitors, uh, uh, agents of imperialism, uh, that fool no one, uh, really, but they do it because uh, they have these uh, willing traders uh, uh, at their disposal. And unfortunately, they've also transformed CARICOM uh, into uh, a ragtag uh, group of uh, um, African people who have no sense of history. Because attacking Haiti uh, is attacking black nationhood. Okay, there was a time not too long ago when the only oasis where people could uh, uh, find freedom in the Americas, uh, uh, a person of color, was Haiti. Okay, and yeah. so the the fact is the reason why they're going uh, into Haiti in 2024 is very similar as to why they went 20 years ago. That is to protect the system. And what is the system? The system is to uh, have a small minority, 1% of the population, control 99% impoverished people, okay? Uh, because there is no way those uh, 15 white mafia families, and what needs to be understood is that these individuals have names, okay? The richest one uh, uh, is a billionaire on the island. His name is Gilbert Bijou. Okay, yeah. he's the he's not only the richest person in Haiti. He's the richest apparently in the Caribbean. He's a billionaire. Now, to be a billionaire in the country reputed to be the poorest in the hemisphere, you need to be asking yourself what kind of business is he <laughs> involved in? Okay, uh, all of the uh, power. Uh, supplies, whether it is uh, petroleum imports and all of these things, come through the GB group, uh, G for Gilbert Bijou. Uh, and this um, man happens to be uh, a Syrian Jew who uh, uh, whose parents uh, emigrated to Haiti in the late 1800s. And they serve as intermediaries for U.S. multinational corporations. In fact, he actually lives in Florida. And other than his reputation as the richest person in Haiti, and of course the family, 
the Bijos have uh, figured on the list of people sanctioned by Canada, and the accusation is that they have the Canadian government, okay, put him on the list with the accusation of being involved uh, in fueling the so-called gangs, you know, those young people that you see uh, in ragtag clothes, uh, sandals, uh, and carrying $8,000, $10,000-a-piece uh, weapons in their hands. And this Gilbert Bijot guy has his own private ports. Uh, for 25 years, he was the consulate of Israel. Therefore, he has diplomatic immunity. Uh, time and again, illegal weapons were caught in his private port, but he was never uh, 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 called to justice or whatsoever. And since December the 5th, 2022, uh, Canada reluctantly added uh, the first three white warlords on its list. Gilbert Bijo, Sheriff Abdallah, and um, uh, what was the, the third? Uh, Reynold Deeb. And all three on the accusation that they were, uh, there were there's collusion between them, their business activities, and the so-called gangs. So the reality is that uh, these gangs are mobilized by those 15 white mafia families to protect their business interest in Haiti. When they have competition amongst uh, themselves, they send these black kids to go uh, and take territories for them uh, to protect their um, products coming from the Dominican Republic. And when we talk about their products, some it's not always about you know, food imports and stuff. Sometimes it's illegal weapons. Um, it's drugs. Uh, the biggest drug scandal in Haiti uh, in 2015, uh, the code word is Manzanares, the name of the boat that came from Panama and Colombia and was bringing in heroin, co cocaine, and etc. And some of the information that uh, filtered uh, about this investigation, which involved the Drug uh, Enforcement Administration in the United States, FBI, etc., in the investigation, um, it started to show that many people within the 15 white mafia families in Haiti had contributed for the import of this huge uh, uh, boat of uh, uh, drugs into Haiti that was making its way to the United States. And Michel Martelly, who was at the time president of Haiti, was also involved in that scandal. And when the uh, you know they started making some arrests, they were only arresting only one um, you know low-level associate, you know, of course, a black guy was arrested in that thing, although they had evidence that implicated people like Michel Martelly, etc. And in the United States, uh, there was a judge uh, that uh, issued uh, criticism of the DEA saying that the DEA had information and it's, it looks like they did it on purpose to derail the investigation into the Manzanares uh, drug bust. Um, and to this day, people can go and search that information. Uh, the, the Manzanares is M-A-N-Z-A-R-E-S, Manzanares. Uh, so 
it's and it, it so happens that the same set of players that were involved in the Manzanares scandal in 2015, including Michel Martelly, uh, Colombian mercenaries, uh, the so-called uh, local elite or white mafia families that I call them in Haiti, their names came up again a few years later in the assassination of Jovenel Moise in 2021. Uh, some of them, such as uh, Woodrow Jar, was in fact uh, condemned to life in prison for his involvement. But they took only Woodrow Jar, but you know, the information that was filtering was that Woodrow Jar had collected money to pay the Colombian mercenaries, but the money wasn't only from his family. He was just the collector. Many of the 15 white mafia families in Haiti are, uh, according to people in the streets, implicated in the assassination of Jovenel Moise, who was their puppet. Uh, but they felt that they were losing control of him. Uh, and um, But none of these other folks are listed in that investigation as indicted uh, for the assassination of Jovenel Moise. And that's why people are very worried, because uh, Woodrow Jar uh, was listed as a DEA informant, uh, and several times he's been arrested, and we only find out that they had uh, released him only when he's been rearrested for another crime. So a lot of these folks who have made deals with the DEA, with the FBI, who are implicated in these criminal activities in Haiti, when you hear that the United States has tried them and put them in jail, you never know when they are released. I guess one one last point you could bring deal with is the the fact that okay Ariel Henry Henry he was uh, he is not actually he was supposed to leave uh, on February seventh and uh, he said no I I'm gonna stay here until we have uh, you know better more proper process or, or something like that and uh, so basically he has no constitutional mandate to be here. Uh, the people are rising up and, uh, you know, getting really angry. And I, I'm wondering, I mean, in terms of the, the strength of the Haitian people to, uh, you know, to prevail in the end and, and bring about democracy, how how much is it going to depend on the part of, uh, you know, your, your you know, the Confederates in, in, in the United States and in Canada who are also working on their own governments and, uh, you know, to, to work against this uh you know, this form of white supremacist control, if, as you will. Yeah, actually, it's even worse than that. Ariel Henry wasn't supposed to live February 7th, uh, 2024. He was never supposed to be in power. <laughs> he never had a mandate. Okay? Uh, he was named uh, by a tweet issued by the core group. That is, the white folks who are running Haiti behind puppets. Okay, so there's no process. And the Haitian constitution does not recognize uh, all of these things that have been happening. Okay, A prime minister in Haiti uh, is someone who is appointed by an elected president. And the prime minister runs the government, but the head of state is the president. It's only a president, an elected president, who can sign contracts on behalf of the people of Haiti. And so, for instance, now they find themselves in a conundrum because the white supremacist forces who took over Haiti since 2004 and has been running the sham elections and different processes, you know, inventing as they go along, 
find themselves in a situation where the legal system in 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 Kenya says that uh, they cannot deploy uh, police into Haiti, and even if they were to do something like that, their legislature would have to ratify an accord, a mutually agreed upon accord between Haiti and Kenya, which does not exist. But now, the United States, Canada, or the core group, they are telling the black people of Kenya and the black people of Haiti, oh, forget about legalities, uh, you will get something signed. And we're saying in Haiti, we don't have a president to sign anything in our names, okay? You overthrew our last real president, okay? So, but that's the problem with white supremacy. There is no respect for black nationhood. So they don't care if you're violating the laws of Kenya, the laws of Haiti. Um, they want to have a military force to protect the white mafia families in Haiti. And therefore, uh, the United States is, you know, branding uh, around money, uh, saying that they have $2 uh, million dollars uh, $200 million uh, for that force. Canada just announced that they have $128 million uh, that they're adding to the pot. It's as if these people think that money can cover any mess that they have created. Um, and of course, the real uh, objective here is to transform that white supremacist crime they committed 20 years ago and ongoing, right? Because, of course, the uh, United Nations troops that they sent to Haiti committed mass murders, uh, massacres in the popular neighborhoods, killing scores of people at the time, uh, 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 raped a number of women, uh, there are a number of uh, fatherless children uh, running around in Haiti uh, who were raped by the Jordanian peacekeepers, uh, the uh, Sri Lankans. Uh, some of them uh, brought in cholera, which contaminated over a million Haitians, killing uh, uh, estimates vary between 20,000 and um, uh, 80,000 Haitians that were killed by cholera, and not a cent in reparation to, uh, to, to the families of the victims. So what they are doing right now with Ariel Henry, who is, you know, being, uh, uh, you know, carried uh, from city to city to negotiate all kinds of accord is to pretend that there is, you know, a group of people in Haiti who are asking for this uh, intervention. And like I said, uh, you don't need to go far to find out what the true objective of that intervention is. There is a former U.S. ambassador to Haiti. Her name is Pamela White, who in um, October, sorry, uh, as early as uh, August 2022, started publishing op-eds uh, in newspapers in the Caribbean, the United States, where she calls on the Haitian private sector, which is the term they use to uh, describe the 15 white mafia families in Haiti. They call it, the whenever they say the private sector in Haiti, they're not talking about street merchants and, and black Haitians who are doing commerce, okay? They're talking about Gilbert Bijou, they're talking about Andrea Aped, Sheriff Abdallah, all of these guys that Canada has identified as people who are fueling the gangs. And so Pamela White said that these folks should stop playing around, playing games with you know street gangs and put real money on the table to hire mercenaries 
be they former CIA, former FBI agents, uh, former police officers from New York, uh, you know, put real money and get mercenaries to come to uh, liberate this country that has made them incredibly rich. Hmm. So Pamela White is telling us that these folks that are coming in, are coming in, must come to protect the white mafia families. And so we shouldn't be surprised if uh, these Kenyans show up, uh, you know, with, uh, you know, a couple of uh, police officers from the Bahamas and countries that really are barely independent, um, you know, who are subject of, of, of the Queen of England or the King of England, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, going into Haiti to commit a crime that they're going to describe as black on black crime. They're going to accuse them of, uh, um, you know, lack of professionalism, etc. I mean, in reality, uh, it's predictable uh, what the mess uh, is going to be. Uh, it's not uh, without reason that the Kenyan soldiers that they had sent in uh, the Congo to fight so-called terrorists, uh, um, they found that instead of fighting those terrorists in the Congo, the, the Kenyans were making deals with them and working against the government of the Congo. And so they kicked them out uh, a few months ago. Mm -hmm. And now they're taking those people and sending them into Haiti. So it's uh, a, a real disgrace that uh, Canadians don't know what their tax money uh, is funding. For instance, very few people in Canada are aware that we have a military base in Jamaica. So when you hear that the Caribbean countries are involved in this, it's all really front because uh, it's the United States and Canada participating in a crime, but using black bodies as shield uh, uh, so that uh, when the mess happens, uh, it's not evident that they are the ones who are the Frankensteins who are uh, manipulating uh, the monsters. Okay. Well, uh, Jeff, Jeff Heaty, I, I really thank you for uh, bringing this, uh, this information to the attention of our listeners. And of course, you'll be bringing it up uh, on, uh, on the, uh, the 29th of February on the anniversary. So uh, I guess good luck with that. And uh, yeah, we'll keep spreading it across the country and, you know, maybe we'll, Get eventually we'll catch up with our uh, our, our friends and uh, family in Haiti. So uh, thanks and uh, all the best. Thank you, Michael. Jeffrey Kaiti uh, is a Cana Haitian-born Canadian and activist, and also contributor to GlobalResearch.ca. That's the end of this installment of the Global Research News Hour. Tune in next week for an International Women's Day tribute with various reports from around the globe. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, a program funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on the traditional lands of the Anishinaabe, Ininu, Ojikri, Dene, and Dakota, the birthplace of the Métis Nation and the heart of the Métis Nation homeland. The show airs on partner radio stations across Canada and the United States and is available for streaming or download at the site globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, please email globalresearch.ca newshour at gmail.com. I've been your host, Michael Welch. Thanks once again for joining us.